Welcome to Delve and to the last episode in our series. We end in Bowness on Windermere, one of the largest settlements in our journey, a small town that sits on the side of Windermere itself. When we delve a little deeper, we will discover that not just the settlement, but the lake itself has much to tell us. Thank God I have the seeing eye. That is to say, as I lie in bed, I can walk step by step on the fells and the rough land, seeing every stone and flower and patch of bog and cotton grass, where my old legs will never take me again. The words of an elderly Beatrix Potter, written when she could no longer walk the fells, should be a joy to us all, and bring us not for the first time in these episodes, to ponder the range of experiences that the fells provide, and also that of the residual experience, memories comforting Potter in her later years. This episode is based in the busy town of Bonas on Windermere, where, in places, the edges of the town merge with the shores of the largest body of water in the lakes, and indeed, in England. But here, in seeming contrast with Potter's words, stands Beatrix Potter World, which attracts nearly 200,000 visitors a year, which is a drop in the ocean in comparison to the number of tourists that visit the town. When on the shores of Windermere, looking out over the surface of the water, it is often impossible to escape others. There are many tourists that stream to Windermere, now not only in summer months, but all year round. A moment's quiet to watch the boats and yachts and occasional swimmers is to be cherished and can feel like a rarity. It's hard when we think of Bowness to imagine anything else but people. On his 1937 journey through Lakeland, Chiang Yi, the political exile turned travel writer, notes in his distinctive journal, The Silent Traveller in Lakeland, what he found there. We arrived at Windermere by lunchtime and took our meal in a small restaurant. Alas, I cried to my friend, we are back in London again, for the streets were packed with people strolling as if they were in Oxford Street or Piccadilly Circus, only with the difference that they walked all in one direction. We came to the lakeside. I could not describe my senses at the time. The people packed in rows looking at the scenery reminded me of a news film I had seen of the university boat race, while the ranks of cars parked along the waterside made me think of Derby Day. We walked to the left and through a wicket gate, where the crowd was less. Standing by the edge of the lake, I had the momentary impression of being on the Yangtze riverbank, for this lake was rather like a river from this viewpoint, so long that I could not possibly reach either end with my eyes. The mountains opposite, although partly obscured by the mist, do not strike me as being very high, but were luxuriantly vegetated with thick woods. The colours changed miraculously as the mists dispersed in one place and thickened in another, shifting almost imperceptibly. It amazed me where the red colour should come from that made such an incredible and forgettable purplish layer over all of the mountain face. When we hear this, 
It's tempting to think back to our last episode, to the coming to the lakes of the railways, and the oppositions of Wordsworth and Ruskin to that mechanism which enabled the masses to come to imagine their horrified reaction to Chiang Li's words, written only 90 years after the railway's arrival. But that is to ignore the most striking and powerful part of the piece of writing, the moment that within a couple of steps of being in what he saw as London, he forgets. Mesmerised by the view, and very much like Dorothy Wordsworth in Grasmere, he stands by a gate, looking over the lake, consumed by colours and contours. And it is thanks to the railway that he and millions of others who have stood there and gasped at that view have had that opportunity. Ruskin's view of the lakes is perfect, wild, undisturbed, quiet beauty, although the prevailing image is time-specific. He was lucky, lucky to have arrived in Cumbria in one of the first peaceful times in its history. Relentless fighting over territories had dominated the areas until into the 17th century. Throughout our series, we have heard some of this. Romans, Vikings, Normans, Reavers, but thanks to the Romans, we can go back a little further into a period where we have not yet ventured. As from them, we have the first period in Cumbria with textual evidence. And as you can imagine, it too was volatile. Although every bit of Cumbria was not involved in every moment of historical conflict there, we know that before the Roman occupation, the north came under the rule of the Brigantes, a tribe covering the area now in northern England and southern Scotland. But, as always, this is not the whole picture. There is a probable exception to this rule. Cumbria. From around 800 BC... Cumbria came under the people known as the Carvitii. Carvitii, people of the deer. Omitted from early Roman texts, other evidence remains, gravestones, milestones. It's probable that the Carvitii married into the Brigantes forming a union with their first century queen, Catimandua. Loyal to Rome, she is cited in contemporary Roman literature, the only British queen, to be given the prestigious title, Regina. Cartimandua's husband, Venutius, was the Carvitii's leader. Cartimandua's story is a contorted first-century soap opera. She handed other tribal leaders to Rome, who in turn helped to defend the area, but around 51 AD, Venutius turned on Cartimandua. He resented her handing an eminent resistance leader to Rome. They divorced. He used his forces against her and against Rome. He then led the resistance while she married one of his servants. Tacitus, a Roman historian, suggests that part of the reason Venutius was able to garner such a strong resistance was that many of their noblemen and women did not want to be ruled by a servant. Venutius launched two organised attacks, the second being ultimately successful. Cartimandua was evacuated and he subsequently ruled over the area into the second century. The Romans struggled with warring tribes and their own politics, eventually leaving Cumbria in the late 4th century. 
After this, Cumbria became part of Hanoglud, the Old North, the whole area from Lothian down to the top of Wales. The ferocious fighting for years and years seems somehow at odds with the tranquility of the area today. But we know that the most important of histories can peter out of collective memory in a very short space of time. In between those bursts of conflict and before the arrival of those who travelled to walk the streets, shores and nearby fells, Barnes was a fishing village. And the locals, who were not affluent, made their living from the waters at Windermere. The mere is a stunning 10.5 miles long, a meandering ribbon lake. The glacier that moved down it left behind it chunks of land that became the islands that interspersed the surface of the water. In total, there are 18 islands, and all have their own stories. Too many to share here. Lady Home or St Mary Home used to have a chapel on it, where some of the monks from Furness Abbey resided. Crowholm is where the local hunt faction for the Windermere Harriers used to house their hounds. Silverholm is famous for being the inspiration for Cormoran Island in Swallows and Amazons, and Maidenholm is tiny, just big enough to hold one tree. Local rumour is that it moves. Great or Long Island is nearly a mile long, now known as Belle Isle. It is a private inhabited island. Local legend has it the Roman commander from the Ambleside Fort built a pleasure villa on it. Before the Civil War, the Phillipsons of Crook Hall owned Belle Isle. And on here, on this tiny island in this idyllic place, we have the abrupt interruption of warfare. During the Civil War, the island became a stronghold for the royalist Philipsons. In response to this, parliamentarians arrived and fired shots from cannons from Cockshot Point, a slither of land jutting out into Windermere. Due to heavy tree plantation, the house was protected. When Christopher Philipson's widow died, in debt, the island's ownership came into dispute, needing to be settled in court. In 1774, London architect John Plaud designed the roundhouse built there. Wordsworth later described it as a pepper pot in a shop window. In 1781, the island was bought by John Christian, who named it after his wife, Isabel. As well as the histories on the islands, there are those that lie below the surface of the water. Windermere has a well-kept secret mainly known to those whose 3M starts on summer mornings are part of a ritual of a centuries-old battle of wits, the hide-and-seek of man and char. The Lake District is the only place in England to have Arctic char, and there are only eight waters where these fish live. Windermere has a particular type of char fishing, which is unique to it developed in the 1920s and at one point sustaining over 60 fishes full-time. There are still around 20 fishes using the technique, but it is now a mainly part-time enterprise. And it is, if done in the Windermere fashion, difficult to fish for char. The practice has customs which virgin religious. According to Windermere fishers, char require a law, usually handmade, often from gold. 
rods are placed out of the boat, which must keep moving at all times at a constant speed, so that the lines drag behind at a 45 degree angle. And the law sits at a point that marks halfway down the lake, 78.5 feet. The boats must keep moving, so the law keeps spinning. Memory points are used by fishermen to remember exactly where lines are, and bells hanging from the edge of the poles alert them to catches. Older fishermen still believe that gold makes the best law, particularly gold from a sovereign. In fact, in the interviews the fishermen gave some years ago, they were quite specific. The gold must be beaten out to the thickness of a butterfly wing. Apparently, Charles prefer Australian sovereigns. The last fisherman to own a lure made of the coin, Bruce Squires, refused to use them after 1940, as he was terrified the pike would take them. There has been a huge drop in the number of char in the past few years. The quality of the water has been in decline for a couple of decades. Sometimes an oily sheen can be seen on the water due to heavy traffic. There have been commercial fisheries at Windermere for many centuries. The earliest recording of them is in 1223, recorded due to a falling out between the monks of the abbey and a local baron both had fishing rights from an agreement formed in 1157. Throughout the centuries, there are many records of local barons, landowners and the crown being involved in the fishing rights on Windermere. Some fisheries were owned by the Flemings at Rydal and were very well researched in the early 20th century by Mary Armit. Sir Daniel Fleming of Rydal was very fond of char and spent quite considerable sums sending his friends char pie. In 1666, he sent the Earl of Carlisle while he was residing in London a char pie that weighed 28 kilograms. As well as fishing, commercial public ferries across the lake have existed for over 500 years. In 2017, 1.6 million people used the Windermere Lake Cruises. Which brings us to our folktale, one of the most well-known in Cumbria. When the ferries across Windermere were run by local men, they rowed from Farsore to Bonas and back in boats they had made from wood they had chopped. The weather could halt a journey. One of these nights at Martimus, the ferrymen huddled in the Bonas tavern, warming themselves by the light of the fire and swigging ale. One of the ferrymen was looking forward to heading home to his wife and his bed when he heard a cry. A cry from across the lake. Hello, is there a boat? Thinking of his wife at home and about to drain his last drink, the ferryman very nearly ignored the call, but duty sent him out and the promise of some silver for the journey. He walked out into the biting wind, the rain beating on his face, and clambered into his boat. Guided by the light of the moon, he rowed over to Far Surrey and got out of the other side. The passenger was nowhere to be seen. Frustrated at the lack of payment and wondering where the voice had gone, he marched halfway up Clive Heights to the quarry, 
where he encountered something that is still unknown. When he got back to the Baroness and walked into the tavern in need of a stiff drink, the whole room fell silent. The man had silver white hair, as silver as the moonlight that had guided his way. Not only that, but there were lines on his face where there had been no lines and a crook in his back that had not been there because whatever he had seen had aged his body by over 30 years. Two days later, he died. The other boatman immediately went to the priest from Furnace Abbey that lived on Lady Home who performed as many exorcisms on the other side of the lake as he could. There are still those who tell that it is not safe to walk on the water's edge on an evening in case they encounter the same thing. The thing in the story changes from version to version. The ghost of a monk who died from a broken heart after falling in love or a demon from hell who had ended up in the quarry after coming up through a labyrinth under the earth. The story is an old one. Harriet Martineau mentioned it in her 1855 Guide to the Lakes, which was thought to be the first mention, until Alan Cleaver found another from 1852 from the Kendall Mercury. The story of the Clave Crier highlights the underlying theme of our podcast, the intersection of history and folk tale, song and law. And it does this with the presence on an ordnance survey map of three words, Crier of Glaive. The only ghost marked on an ordnance survey map in the UK. And from the lake to the town, the word bonus is, of course, from Old Norse and means bullhead. The town is connected to Windermere Village, although they are still distinct in their centres. Historically, Burness has been the place that has embraced the tourist element of the lakes most, with countless hotels, bed and breakfasts and cafes. Today, it is a bustling hive, with restaurants, bars, people in and out of the tourist attractions and hot spots. Tourism has been a double-edged sword, as we've seen throughout the series. Jane Renerf of the Ambleside Oral History Group tells us about the ups and downs of the lakeside, the bigger houses and the start of second homes on Windermere. A lot of the wealthy people here had come here and built villas and second homes in the 1850s and 60s. Once the railway got to Windermere, it was within uh, rail distance to commute to Manchester or Liverpool and these big, lovely villas by Lakeside grew up. And, of course, they had staff and they kept quite grand company. And, uh, you know, they would have a retinue of staff. They'd be cooking the kitchen and a parlour maid and a governess for the children, all that sort of thing. Um, and during the First World War, and the, especially after the Great Crash in 1929, a lot of those businesses, a lot of those family-run businesses that were in Newcastle and Manchester, um, they went bust and they had to sell the big houses off. So um, a lot of domestic staff lost their jobs. And also they didn't want to be quite so deferential as they had been before the First World War. Um, 
it was a different social order in the 20s. Um, I think a lot of the men at the front had seen the possibly the mismanagement of senior um, officers and came back without the same belief in authority that they'd had beforehand, all that came into it, and holiday lets in the 1980s. And we could see right from the start of this with the sort of growth of um, people who were coming up to retirement, buying homes in advance of retirement, letting them out, and then they would be ready to retire to. But it was less housing for local people, less affordable housing. And the, 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 we, we could see that there was a social problem emerging here that local people couldn't afford to live in the area where they'd been born and had to get jobs outside. So the teachers that wanted to teach in the area where they'd been brought up had to live maybe 20, 30 miles away and commute in. And that's still the case. They're coming from beyond Kendall to teach in the lakes quite often because there's very few teachers that could afford a house in the lakes now. The oldest pub in Bonas is reported to be the Hole in the Wall, which dates to the 1600s. The once landlord there, when it was called the New Inn, was champion Cumberland and Westmoreland wrestler Thomas Longmire. In fact, he was so successful that he travelled far and wide with the sport. But in 1857, he was observed wrestling by Charles Dickens. Dickens was particularly taken with the customs of Cumberland. He visited Longmire to find out more about wrestling, and then engaged in a wrestling match with him. He later wrote... Good wrestlers rarely hurt one another. This quiet-looking giant by our side, who has been champion often and often, and will be again one day, although he was nearly 40 and more than 12 years past the wrestler's prime, has never, in his 20 years' experience, once been hurt. He won his first man's belt when a lad of 16 years old. And in his house across the lake yonder, a clean, neat little inn, the New Hall Inn, Bones, set in a wilderness of flowers, has no less than 174 of these wrestling zones. Of all colours they are, and of all descriptions. Dickens enjoyed travelling to spend time in Cumbria, and once even came to Cumbria with the writer Wilkie Collins. Like other parts of this area that we have already explored, Bowness had a serious issue with poverty, and in 1829 something familiar, especially to Dickens' readers, opened. A workhouse financed partly by the church, taxes and local businessmen, the workhouse in Bonus was short-lived, closing after six years due to the Poor Law Act Amendment in 1836. The building was reconfigured in 1858 and by 1862 sold to a new company, the Windermere Gas Company. The church that helped in the creation of the workhouse was St Martin's. There has been a church on the current site since 1203, but the building is not the original. In 1480, the church burned down, with very limited amount of the stonework surviving. There have been various rebuilds to the site over the years. There are several very old inscriptions in the church, one of which, supposedly written on Guy Fawkes night, admonishes people who restore inscriptions in Latin and accidentally change the meaning by misreading the words. It is signed, Christopher Phillipson. A legend exists that when the parliamentarians shot cannons at Belle Isle, the vicar tried to claim the organ and St Martin's had been hit, until others realised this could not have happened without them firing backwards. 
Churches were previously the hubs of community, of the community, mainly as major life events and calendar year celebrations took place there. In episode 3, we spoke to Alan Cleaver about the corpse roads and addressed death customs throughout the ages, looking at Cumbrian practices. Here, we look at wedding customs. There isn't much variation in Cumbria in the wedding ceremony itself, standardised by the church. But what happened after was, up until it fell out of practice, quite different to wedding traditions in other places. When the wedding ceremony came to a close, the local pub was the first point of call, before collectively, guests returned to their horses, the main method of transport at the time, pulling those without a horse on the back. They had a race to get back to the bride's house. The bride would then give the winner of the race a ribbon. Over the Cumbrian fells and mountain passes, this was quite a dangerous pursuit. There are reports of the death of people in races back to get the ribbon, and it was said that the first woman to get back would be married within a year. Once at the house of the bride, there would be a feast with more singing and dancing. The bride would then be chased upstairs by bridesmaids and women of the party who would stand round at the end of the bed while the bride took off her stocking and, facing away from them, threw it at them. The girl that the stocking hit was the next to get married. There was a custom which was a little more lewd where people would actually remove the stockings of the bride without her permission and, in some places, actively tear the dress to shards, taking fabric in the hope of luck. It has been suggested that the presence of a garter was so the congregation had something to tear from the bride, rather for it to be removed in a rather undignified way. Occasionally, raucous Cumbrian weddings could get out of hand. On the 19th of October, 1635, a wedding party from Hawkshead set off in boats across Windermere to the groom's house to continue celebrations. While no one knows what the cause of the accident was, all the 50 people involved were drowned. In many respects, Cumbrian couples were all ahead of the game in having what was known as a bidden wedding. This is where couples invited a large amount of people and they didn't just leave gifts, but also money. The point was to set them up with what they needed to live. There are parts from 1788 of a wedding party donating £130, which is roughly £10,000 in today's money. To contextualise that further, a skilled tradesman in that period would earn this in two and a half years. Those attending bidden weddings were given an afternoon of wrestling and racing and there was often games with prizes involved. The Gothic Cumbrian poet John Stagg wrote a poem on bidden weddings. A wedding custom that survives in pockets throughout the county is ball baiting or barring, a practice carried out by children. When weddings are occurring, the local children block the road to ask the guests for money to let them past. It is a good-humoured custom. In weddings where the couple were poorer, corn was practised, where the couple would go from house to house asking for corn seed. This is something people saw as the bride and groom's right and seed would be provided. And churches and love bring us to our folk song, but it is not one of marriage. Described by leading ethnomusicologists as the most widely collected folk song, there are nearly 1,700 recorded variations of Barbara Allen, 
a staggering reminder of the fluidity of the life of songs across time and place. The first mention of the song in history is in the diary of Samuel Pepys in 1666, where he says how much he enjoys listening to his mistress, an actress, and singer singing it. When they pass notes to each other, she would sign them Barbary Allen in order to avoid her identity being exposed. The song is likely to be very much older than that. Despite the origins being unknown, we know that it was sung all over the country from the versions collected. We also know that it was sung in Cumbria and the reason we're including it here rather than a Cumbrian folk song in our last episode is because Robert Anderson, the Bard of Cumberland, wrote that he enjoyed listening to his Scottish neighbour singing it. I spent many a winter evening at her fireside, delighted beyond measure with the wild Scottish ballads which she taught me while labouring at her wheel. Lord Thomas and Farinet, the Duke of Gordon, and Barbary Allen and Binnery were my greatest favourites. From this cheerful, kind-hearted, well-informed creature, I imbibed the love of song, which has to the present day so particularly engaged my attention. It was in the
The last verse, lyrically shared with many a good folk song, is particularly beautiful. And despite the somewhat unusual love story, the end leaves us with a resolve. It's certainly easy to see why generation on generation has been captivated by its story and melody. There is one, Cumbrian pastime, that we have not mentioned in our series, perhaps Doreen Wallace's description of in her book on English Lakeland would be fitting. When Cumbrians drink, they like to feel they have something for their money. They don't leave off until they have the warm interior glows and sometimes not even then. Actually, I ought to list drinking as one of the old Lakeland customs, one of those that has survived, though not in its pristine vigour. Those who are addicted to the bottle advance the excuse of the climate, and not without some reason. A man is often wet to the skin, and nothing wards off the ill effects of a wetting, so well as whiskey. And drinking is something that Cumbrians have traditionally been fond of. All customs have been dying out in Cumbria since the end of the 19th century. For many rural areas, schooling was a factor in this. The disappearance of tradition, wherein under a generation a custom can dissolve, brings us to think of the people we've heard. There is a word that keeps recurring. From the first interviews to the last, it surfaces. When we spoke to Jean Scott Smith of the Lakeland Dialect Society, she said, See, The future is the thing that gives us the most concern, really. When I joined, I was a young mother. There were other people of my sort of age group also, and we knew that we were being groomed by the older ones for the future. And Mm. actually, we've come to be the older ones now, and we're seeing a lack of people joining in the... I think people may be taking interest in dialect when they get into the middle years. We do get a few that are joining maybe in the 40s or 50s, which is better than now that we could do, but these young folk are always too busy. Mm. So far, our throng is it's uh, a great group to be involved with, but we could do with a fair few younger folk to keep yeah. it going for the future. Because when you look at a lot of our committee people, sort of over 17, 80, and even into the 90s, yeah. and not many coming up behind 
in that younger yeah. age bracket. That'll end up in the history books with a few recordings in uh, in collections here and then. You know, it's sad because there's been an awful lot of dialect literature over the years. Very, very good, uh, mm. informative stuff and word books and all sorts of things. All out mm. of print now, of course. In hearing again and again the stories of our interviewees, people who have spent their lives collecting, it was impossible to not begin to see them as becoming the collected. The standard picture of the North is defined by absence of culture, of city, of order, of progress, but as we've repeatedly seen, it couldn't be further away from this. There is wealth, abundance and richness. Richness of tales, richness of language, richness of song, of history, of place, of experience. There is always richness to be found when you delve that little bit deeper. And you can carry on doing that. There are some excellent podcasts on Cumbria, particularly Country Stride. Matt Richards, who presents it, told us his favourites to get you started. With Scientist Anne Lingard on the Solway Marshes, or Sheila Gordon on Lady Anne Clifford, Alan Cleaver on the Ghosts of Wasdale Carps Road, James Rebanks in Matterdale, and Eric Horn on Making Cheese at Gillsland. So go, journey further with them, for this little area of the county is that little, but what a bounty, which is echoed place by place and guest after guest. With a huge thanks to Mark Nellis for putting together the additional music for our series, to Stephen Toff for adding his vocal talents to the characterisation of many a person we've met along the way, and to all those who've agreed to be interviewed and share their unique, heartfelt stories with us. And a thank you to you for listening. We will be back with a new series in spring, hopefully with some new stories. We will leave you with the words of Norman Nicholson, a poem that with each reading seems to resonate that little bit more strongly. A love letter, a real unvarnished love letter, saturated again with richness, of language and of sentiment the interplay between depicting harsh reality and the strong affection for it, where fondness supersedes all. Starting with a quote from Wordsworth, that fondness steadily becomes the dominant feeling in the poem we will hear, which hopefully, in some way, has also been accomplished here in these episodes. Hopefully the affection for the place shines through the stories, in the balance between history, folk traditions and place. And it has been that, a balancing act, figured out slowly and step by step, though navigating the sharpest of ridges. Words were throat, remote from every taint of sordid industry. But you and I, no better doesn't last. For I, who've lived for nearly thirty years upon your shore, have seen the slag banks slant like scree sheer into the sand, and seen the tide, purple with ore, back up the muddy gullies, and wipe the sinter dust from the farmyard damsons. A hundred years of floods and rain and wind have washed your rocks clear of his words again, 
many of them half forgotten, brimming the Irish sea. But that which Wordsworth knew, even the old man, when poetry had failed like desire, was something I have yet to learn. And you, Dudden, have learned and relearned to forget and forget again. Not the radical, the poet and heretic to whom water forces shouted and the fells were like a blackboard for the scrolls of God. But the old man, inarticulate and humble, knew that eternity flows in a mountain back. The long cord of the water, the shepherd's numerals that ran upstream through the singing decades of dialect, he knew beneath mutation of year and season, flood and drought, frost and fire and thunder, the frothy blossom on the rowan and the reddening of the berries, the silt, the sand, the slag banks and the shingle, and the wild catastrophes of the breaking mountains. There stands the base and root of the living rock, thirty thousand feet of solid Cumberland. So